called the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. It's a serious question. I, I appreciate your passion. I share it. I've addressed this question. I've addressed my personal feelings. And I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. You're listening to Just Ask the Question, adventures in reporting with your host, Brian Karam. Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am Brian Karam, and today we're at the Dish and Dram in Kensington with Mike Curry, former press uh, secretary not for Donald Trump. <laughs> well, thanks for coming to our great neighborhood place here at the Dish and Dram. Yeah, it's a great place, and, and thanks. Before You know, the, the title of the, of the podcast is Just Ask the Question, so... I usually try to be as blunt <laughs> as possible. I'm used to it. But yeah, that's as a press secretary you were. I, you don't remember. I was. I was. We were both much younger. But you were. Um, one of the things I remember about you in the press briefing room was, and you were the first one to put it on television. Um, <laughs> that was a somewhat it was less controversial when I did it than later on when it became kind of an <laughs> afternoon soap opera. Uh, because of a young intern that worked at the White House. But uh, it was weird that there was no television coverage of the press briefing at the White House. Now, there were TV uh, coverage of the Pentagon briefing, the State Department, where I had been prior. So it just seemed to me that it was perfectly natural that you'd have a television broadcast of the White House uh, press briefing. Now, in retrospect, I wish I had not allowed that to be a live broadcast because I think that was probably a mistake you know a briefing is a briefing and right it's a it's they are the raw ingredients of news and reporters need to take whatever they hear at the White House then check other sources talk to other people and then put together a report based on what they gather as news rather than just turning it into a live television event and I, I probably made a mistake by saying look this is not something that you can put on live television, but you can use it for your reporting later in the day. Sound bites and such. Yeah, and and checking things out and, you know, checking other sources. But uh, anyhow, we are where we are now, and it's become kind of a matinee soap opera. Well, they've actually <laughs> cut them off. They don't do it well, anymore. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's probably the reason why Sarah Sanders is still there. Doesn't, doesn't do them. <laughs> like she's like, what she said, like two briefings in the last month or something. Yeah. Well, and it used to be, let's go back. I mean, when I started covering the White House, the first person I met was Helen Thomas, and the second person I met was Sam Donaldson. And the story I always tell about that was uh, Helen. I walked in and Helen said, I, I know who you are. You're a Karen because my, my family had helped her get into the U.S. And she said, I'm going to take you to my house and make you a Lebanese dinner, which was very nice. And then she gave me a load of advice. <laughs> <laughs> Helen used to be the first person I would see every morning when I showed up at the White House. She would be there at 7 o'clock. <clears throat> and the first question she would ask was, what do you have for me? And... Uh, Originally, I thought that meant well, I had some nugget of news that I was going to give to her that she could put out. And then I realized that she really wanted donuts. <laughs> and coffee. <laughs> and coffee. Yeah, but uh, she was quite a character and, you know, kind of a mainstay of that old guard at the press corps. Very hardcore. Yeah. She was. And today, and, and I want to segue into what happened this week and, and talk to you a little bit about that. But I remember a press corps that was much more combative than 
it is today, and yet we're getting pounded for being combative. But as I said, the first two people I met were Helen Thomas, and she said, look, if you're looking to make friends, you went into the wrong business. <laughs> and the second one I met was Sam Donaldson, and Sam pointed to the front row in the briefing. He says, probably 250 years worth of experience there. And he said, and if you look at uh, uh, Helen, there's 200 of it standing right there. <laughs> and she turned around and said something that, to Sam, and I don't remember what it was, and Sam said, hey, it's okay to have an unexpressed thought. And Helen said, oh, when it comes to you, Sam, I have a lot of unexpressed thoughts. <laughs> well, they were, they were two of the more formidable characters that I dealt with during my time at the White House. But, you know, they were, they were always theatrical and willing to ask the tough question. But then Sam is a good example. He would, you know, flap his wings and go into histrionics in the briefing room. And then after the briefing was over, he'd come up to my office and he said, okay, now that the briefing's over, tell me what's really going on. So he, he was a real reporter, and, and so right. was Helen. And they worked hard to really understand, but we, also, we had a very adversarial relationship, which I think by definition it should be. You know, they, right. they are there to hold uh, those in power accountable. And I always felt, <laughs> you know, what's that great uh, saying that the press is there to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Yeah, that's And my, I, yeah. I felt more afflicted than comforted. <laughs> but uh, but they, did, they did their job and they reported accurately. I mean, both of them, both Sam and Helen, you know, you look at their reporting, and it was completely down the road, you know, factual and impartial, truly impartial. And that was the hallmark of the press. They would really cover the White House, you know, blemishes and all, uh, good news and bad news. And they, I think, got to the American people information the American people needed about what was happening at, at the White House and the presidency. And so, some of that relationship has just now deteriorated. Uh, and I don't think that's a good thing for the American people. Well, let's and talk a little bit about that. And I want to look at it from both sides. I mean, I'm not going to, I don't, I'm not looking at it with blinders on. I know that we in the press have our warts as well. <clears throat> but this week, the president of the United States yanked a hard pass from a CNN reporter, from Jim Acosta. And I know Jim. He's, he, he is a hard-charging reporter. He does ask questions that people don't like, but the, the excuse that they used was that he had laid hands on, a, on, on a, uh, an intern, and I was there, and that well, just yeah, didn't happen. And, the, and the, the, the video of that makes it pretty clear that that's a very overstated case. But I, and I they think, doctored the video. Yeah, it, it's a very, very troubling thing. Because, and, and, you know, in general, though, th that process always bothered me anyhow, because I sort of said why it, 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 it kind of creates a mismatch of power for the White House to be in charge of who gets credentials to come in from the press. Uh, the press should have kind of free and unfettered access to come to the White House and, and challenge and cover uh, the people who work there. And I, I was never comfortable with the idea that we were in charge of, of putting that credential in someone's hand that allowed them access to the premises. And it is I, the people's house. Did, it is the people's house, and I, you know, frankly, I never did anything. I thought about ways in which you could change that. Um, I thought maybe that we should have a process by which the White House Correspondents Association, which is the 
association of representatives who covered the White House, they would be in charge of putting the credentials in the hands of the reporters who were there. And put the, put the, you know, frankly, put the business of deciding who's a legitimate reporter in the hands of the press, as opposed to letting the, the White House and the White House staff decide. But I never got around to getting that piece of business done. And now we have <clears throat> what is exactly the problem, which is the White House can punish a reporter that they don't like and yank his credentials and not let him have access to the premises. And that, that's a very, very troubling development in my, my view. Well, I think it's very, it's the very, um, how do I say it without being crass, but I think it's the exact opposite of what the First Amendment stands for. I think it's, it's, it's squelching free speech. I mean, the president said today on the South Lawn that there may be other reporters to that will also suffer the same fate if they're not respectful. And then he went on about how much yeah. respect he has. I think they all ought to take a little uh, field trip down Pennsylvania Avenue to the museum where the words of the First Amendment are enshrined in granite on the front of that building. And freedom of the press, you know, along with the other First Amendment freedoms, are there <laughs> enshrined. And I think it would be a good thing to remind the president and the president's staff that we have a First Amendment for a very important reason. Well, he says it's not that uh, he's against the First Amendment, that uh, Jim was rude. And uh, another one, uh, April Ryan is a loser. And that, um, now look, I'm not defending anybody's, I, I've been accused of being rude. I, I had a, a tiff with uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. I had a, a tiff with President Bush. Um, there have been times when we've gotten crossways, and I'm not recommending getting into fights with them, but, I mean, I do believe you have to stand your ground. Well, you absolutely do, and it's, it, it is, like I say, it's an adversarial relationship. That's what we talk about, it being adversarial, but that it's adversarial on purpose because there's a role that the press has to play to challenge, hold accountable those who have got power. Now, it can be an amicable relationship. I mean, you can sort of say, you have a professional role to play as a journalist. You're here to challenge us to hold us accountable. Uh, you have to respect us in our professional role to try to explain to the American people what we think the president's doing, what the White House is doing. You know, so let us tell our story and you challenge us with things that you think are important too. That's the way the relationship has to work, but it is totally unbalanced right now and it, it we, we are losing track of those things that i think have been very important How so well uh when you have a president that declares the press the enemy of the people hello i mean that is that that dangerous language in a democracy i've had death threats i know others have uh jim has to have a, a bodyguard when he goes out in public yeah and he, i i bet that's true of a lot of the reporters who show up at Trump rallies in the back and Trump's calling them out and pointing at them and saying there's the fake news in the back of the room and you know sooner or later we're going to see some really awful things happen. We've had pipe bombs delivered to CNN. We've had you know we've, we we know what the consequences of that kind of language are and it's it's not good. Um, and I, I, I the, the is it necessary let me ask it this way. Just because we're critical of a president, 
I maintain it doesn't mean that we're fans of the opposition. I'd be critical of, and you certainly, you, you were, you were yeah, President Clinton's. Yeah, you took I, a lot of heat. I remember that. that that's right. <laughs> I mean, I, it, it, it's not like I had comfortable times all the time in the White House press briefing room. Um, but at the same time, I had respect for the journalists who were there. You know, in, early in my days as a young guy, I, was, I had planned to become a journalist. And I had worked, you know, when I was a college kid, I worked on campus as a reporter for the local newspaper in my college town. Um, so I had some sense of what journalism is about, the important role that reporters play. And because I think I had that level of respect for what the profession was about, it made things different in that press briefing room. And the, and the reporters there said, okay, you know, McCurry's out here doing his spin thing and representing Clinton and trying to put everything in the best possible light for President Clinton. But they also fundamentally understood that I had respect for what they did for a living. And that's gone now because I don't think... I get no respect. Yeah, I, I, don't I feel like Rodney get, Dangerfield. I, 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 um, I, I think it's the belligerence and the antagonism that exists in that relationship now has really poisoned something that's very important in our democracy. We've got to, we've got to trust the information that we get uh, about what the president is doing and what the president is up to. And the, obviously the place where we get that information is from the, the free press that reports. Well, and you know, we've lost that now. One of your uh, predecessors, Larry Speaks, one of the first things I remember him saying when I was there with, uh, with Sam one day was, he said, look, don't tell us how to stage the news. We won't tell you how to report it. Right. And this administration wants to tell us they're going to stage it. They're going to tell us how to report it. And then when we report it as they tell us, they change their mind and tell us we've, we've done it wrong. I mean, yeah. I, I constantly get the feeling that I'm being herded and pushed into a, an arena where if I don't report what they want, their propaganda, then I'm the enemy of the people. Well, I mean, that... That is the danger. The danger is that if you've got only one truth that you allowed to be told and you're not open to, you know, people challenging you and holding you accountable, then we end up in a place where, frankly, we our country has never been before, where we have kind of a one-state nation with, you know, a press We're a banana controlled. republic. Yeah, we, basically we're a banana republic at that point. I mean— all right, and, and, and I'll hit this, and then I, I do want to talk about the problems of the press. But I was, and I hate Twitter as, as a use for, uh, using Twitter for official government pronouncements to me is an anathema. But the press secretary of the President of the United States tweeted out a video from InfoWars that has been ginned up and doctored. This, to me, is a very huge danger you wouldn't knowingly put out there for the world to see something that is in fact fake yeah i, I think that that is the worst of all possible worlds when we have government controlled information that is misleading or doesn't reflect truth purposely and, uh, misleading purposely misleading now let me go back for a second though and put in a good word for twitter if, if you know, as yeah, a, I do like Twitter. Well, as a White House reporter, if you could wake up in the morning at six thirty a.m. and know the innermost thoughts of the President of the United States because he's put them out there for you, I mean, you would sort of say, 
hey, this is the greatest possible thing in the world. <laughs> Except for I, what I, the thoughts are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't have to have some flack, some press secretary come and interpolate what the president is thinking because I, I get it straight from the president himself. I mean, so there's some aspect of that that is, it's, it's, it, this is real world and we're getting information from the president real time. But the problem is if it's, <laughs> utter craziness <laughs> what, yeah, that's take me there that's, <laughs> what do you do that um but it, it 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 does it does make the presidency more accessible in some ways so you have to kind of stop and think you know it, it's not like donald trump disguises or hides or no. you know hides behind some uh press secretary to go out there and no he's and his cover. own now he he's he does he does puts it all out there himself well for better or worse and i will take you to two points in that press conference on wednesday that showed me i i got up and asked him a question and the question i asked him well first of all i got up with a question in mind about the democrats but he kept going on about oprah so i was like <laughs> i gotta know what's going on between you and oprah and he goes what are you a comedian and i go all right look here's a real question the question is, you came out and said uh, the Democrats, you're going to work with them. But if they investigate you, you're going to investigate them. I said, can you compartmentalize that and for the good of the country, continue to work with them even if they're investigating you? And he said, no, I'm on a war footing. And then he said, and if anything bad happens, I'll just blame the Democrats. Yeah. I mean, as transparent as you can possibly be. Right. There's no, <clears throat> there's no disguising the fact that he thinks that uh, this is a is open warfare and that that's the way he's going to conduct himself for the next now, two years it's tough the, the, the problem is then there's no center of gravity in our system where people come together and actually try to get something done you know we're going to have two years of unbridled warfare to use the president's term and are we going to make any progress on health care? Are we going to do anything about the minimum wage? Are we going to deal with energy policy? Are we going to do anything about climate change? And so nothing, nothing will happen except more of this, you know, constant bickering and uh, back and forth. And that, you know, where does that leave the American public? Any place other than just hopelessly frustrated well, that, that, that we're, we're not getting the government that we deserve. Yeah, that's a, a great question, and I'm wondering where we'll be at the end of two years. Yeah, well, we'll be in the middle of, you know, we'll, we'll, the presidential campaign began yesterday, the day yes. after the election, um, and that's where we'll be. We'll be right in the middle of another contest for political power, and the question is, will someone rise up who's got more vision, more of a sense of what the country should be about, uh, more hope for what we can do together, to challenge Donald Trump is Donald Trump runs for re-election. And we don't know the answer to that yet. I mean, I can't point to you who on the Democratic Party side would be the person who would rise to that level, but someone will. You know, some, we will have a process and someone will emerge from that and someone will capture you know, the public attention and then we'll be off to the races and we'll see if you know, someone can mount a, an effective campaign against Donald Trump. You know, Trump only has about... The hardcore Trump support in this country is probably around 12 to 15 percent. Now, there are a lot of... But they all vote. They all vote, and they're firm, and those are the people who show up at the rallies. Then you got another 25, 30 percent of Republicans who sort of basically say, well, I don't like the Democrats, and I don't like, you know, what they're about, so I will go along with Trump. 
So you get Trump up to 40, 45 percent in what his total approval is. But you can't govern a country with if you don't get 50 percent plus. And, and, it, and he does nothing to kind of reach bring out. people together that would sort of say, let's build some coalitions together and get something done. Now, <clears throat> in the aftermath of this midterm election, will that change? Will he sort of wake up and say, you know, let's go and think about all the crumbling bridges and roads that we've got in this country and let's go do an infrastructure bill together? You know, could that happen? Maybe it'll happen. Uh, let's do something about health care. You know, we don't we don't like Obamacare, but we understand that there are aspects of it that people want. I disagree with you there. I think he likes Obamacare. He just wants to change the name of it. He wants, <laughs> yeah. he wants to brand Trump it. Care. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, kill it, bring it back, change a few things, and it's mine. And, that's, <laughs> and then call it Trump Care. Yeah. Um, that could be, but it would end up being something not too dissimilar from what Congress right. passed in the in the Affordable uh, Health Care Act, but uh, you know, but my point generally is the prospect of people coming together in this very polarized, bitterly divided country uh, to actually get real work done in the Congress that we'll have beginning in January, the newly elected Congress, it, it it's not very hopeful. I mean, the the idea that they're going to actually be able to get significant work done I think is pretty minimal and then that that's a problem that's a fallout from well fill me in what you think the total fallout is from the midterms I mean he came out and said look if you were for it and I'll just put what I see and you tell me what you think I, I see that Donald Trump hijacked the GOP when he ran but today like he says if you and he said embraced me if you embraced me you won and then he made fun of the people who didn't embrace him right. that lost. So you can tend to believe that he has taken over the Republican Party. But I also look at the numbers and the races where he went to be effective. Those were people that already were tilting towards him. So right. I, I don't know. I, I thought the entire – and those were in the Senate. The House, I thought, since all the members of the House were up, as always, it was more indicative of where the country is. Yeah, well, they, you know, he, there has not been within the Republican Party a significant counter-reaction to Trump. And, so, and so sort of some, someone saying, look, this party has been around for a long time. And we go back to Abraham Lincoln, and we've got things that we stand for and things that we believe, and you're not going to trash that legacy. Nobody ever did that in the Republican Party, so they pay the price for that now which is, it is Donald Trump's party. And the, you know, for all practical purposes, the modern Republican Party no longer exists. Now, Democrats, we've got our problems on our side of the fence, to be sure. Yeah, you do. <laughs> but, uh, but we've got, you know, we know how we're gonna adjudicate that. We're gonna have a primary contest. We're gonna see who kind of comes out. We're gonna see whether there's still a center core that kind of represents, you know, the. Obviously, my boss, Bill Clinton, was a new Democrat and redefined what being a centrist Democrat was all about. We've got people, voices in the party that says, no, we've got to have a more progressive, core, liberal left orientation. And we're going to see that fought out. But we will have a process by which that gets adjudicated. The Republicans don't have that because they're, they're, they're stuck with Trump. And they're going to have to deal with Trump all the way through 2020. And uh, 
I don't see, you know, there are a couple of voices that have emerged. You know, we got Senator Jeff Clake, former Senator Jeff Clake from Arizona, who's making noises about running. Maybe Trump will get some kind of challenge and someone will come along and say, no, that's, this is not what the Republican Party stands for. But it's you're kind of hard pressed to think that that's going to have much traction. Well, I mean, you had <laughs> Lindsey Graham saying if you fire Jeff Sessions, then that, that they'll be hell to pay. Now that he's done it, he's backed away from that. You had Mitch McConnell saying anti-Trump things in the beginning. He's backed away from that. Everyone in the Republic, and even Flake, who may run against him, has said things against him, but has always voted with him. He's never yeah. been a, and he says, look, that's who I am. I'm conservative. I get that you're conservative, bully for you. But at some point in time, I haven't, <clears throat> the only one I ever saw stand up against him really was McCain. And he, he's the reason why you still have some kind of health care in this country. Well, um, but there's not a McCain-like figure right now that has the credibility to challenge Think Trump Mitt Romney within could do that, that party. It'll be interesting. You've got you know the former Republican presidential candidate coming to Washington as a newly elected senator. He's got a strong voice. Will he use that to really try to provide a counter narrative to Donald Trump in Washington? He he may very well do that. Um, but will he get traction for that? Will he get support? Will other Republicans be willing to stand with him to challenge Trump? Who, you know, quite frankly. A lot of Republicans just seem frightened by Trump because yeah. they're afraid that he's going to animate some, you know, uh, hardcore group of Republicans who will show up at rallies and start giving them a hard time. <laughs> <laughs> or worse. Or worse. Yeah, that's well, but the, the Democrats do have problems. I mean, you have an aging leadership. You, uh, there's, I, I think one of the things, and I'll be critical of Obama in this, I don't think he built your bench strength very well. I think that you were left with a very weak bench after he left. Yeah, I, th I mean, I think that's true. I think um, we've got, you know, we've got attractive leaders at the local level. Uh, we now have an impressive number of women who are going to be coming to Washington as newly elected members of Congress who could emerge and become their own kind of source of strength within our, our system. But we have not seen emerge yet what the next generation of leadership looks like. I, I, I love Joe Biden, and he's a, he's a great guy, but, you know, he's of my generation, right. and not the new generation that needs to come into power now and start taking on responsibility. And I think until we see that emerge, see that new cadre of leaders emerge, uh, we'll sort of be stuck in the same place. Now... That happens. That's what the natural course of events in presidential contests, which we are now certainly entering into, is that people begin to, you know, light a fire and they they emerge. I mean, that's what Obama did right. when he ran in 2008. Um, so we'll see that happen, I think, and we'll probably see some new faces. We'll hear some people that suddenly, you know, capture the public attention and imagination and they will become the new faces of the democratic party and it's about time because we as you're you're right i mean I, I love nancy pelosi i think she's she works very hard to keep that democratic caucus in the house together 
Uh, Trump loves Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> well, he he better because he's going to have to work with her now. Um, but she, you know, she knows how to kind of keep the the goats in the pasture <laughs> and, and when they want to wander. A, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're goats, <laughs> and but she knows how to she knows how to goat herd, and uh, and she's a very good vote counter. Yes, right? that and, that she is, and so she's you know she's going to keep keep them together and hopefully decide on some priorities and pick and choose where they fight. If, I mean, if, they, if the Democrats in the House start just throwing subpoenas at everything that moves at the Trump White House, that, that would be a mistake because then... What there about were, impeachment? There were, well, I mean, that would be a mistake too at this point because you, you just then provoke a fight that is just going to further divide. Right. And it would be better to first put some points on the board and demonstrate what you can actually do in leadership. And then you can begin to pick and choose where you're going to do the fights. Now, there are clearly things that need to be addressed, uncovered, discovered, investigated. Uh, Some of that will happen, but it ought to be done with discernment and with some precision and not just, you know, throwing everything against the wall to see what sticks. I agree with that. There, you know, there was a, <laughs> I, as a disinterested third-party observer, I look at it and I go, the, the Republicans, they talk about the Democrats being obstructionists. Let's start with them. The Republicans obstructed Obama for eight years, and they were all about obstruction. And it's like as if once they got the, the, the presidency and both chambers of Congress and now even the Supreme Court, you look at it and it's like, well, what did you do with it? They, it's like somebody dropped a present in their lap and they go, oh, I actually did this. What do I do with it? And then the Democrats are, and they're all about the win. Then the Democrats who have had to adapt have been about actually trying to govern, but don't know how to win to do it. Yeah, I think that's it. I think that's right. I mean, you've got both sides frozen into opposition politics rather right. than creative politics that are about substantive achievement. And, it, you know, there's not, there's no caucus there in the center. I mean, I, w- I worked at one point in my career for Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was oh, yeah. one of the last great public intellectuals in the U.S. Senate, U.S. Senator from New York. He served both Republican and Democratic presidents. And he used to say, I, I can almost hear him say it, oh, the quintessential question of American politics is, will the center hold? Will the center hold? And the center in our politics has practically evaporated now. Exactly. I mean, one hand would quote the great poem by William Butler Yeats, The Second Coming. It's, you know, things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. And that's kind of where we are right now. There's, there's no center of gravity where people sort of come together and say, okay, we have to set aside our partisan differences because we've got to get some work done for the country. And we just, we just don't have that environment, that political culture now. And How do we get it? Well, you, I think you get inspirational leaders who demand it, and you get American voters who vote for it and who insist on it and insist on candidates who set aside partisan differences. Now, we, we don't get that right. We, get, we, get, we don't you know, have anybody doing The political that. reward seems to go to the people who move to the extremes on either side. And uh, until... You know, until people kind of rise up and say, "Look, we don't, we don't want hardcore Dems, hardcore 
Republicans, hardcore liberals, hardcore conservatives. We want people who actually get come to Washington to get the work done. Now, voters say they want that. But they don't do But that. they don't vote for it. And well, that, that's, they don't that's, vote. Or they, well. That's the problem. They vote. I mean, we had, we had you know, we had a respect, respectful turnout in this midterm Still, election. 50%, more than 50% of the people they don't, don't vote. vote. That's correct. And that's a problem. It I mean, every time I talk to someone and I ask them and I ask everyone on this show and I'm assuming that you vote. You're right. Yeah. So, I, you know, most people that I interview vote. But a lot of people that I speak with, when I talk to them, I go, you know, they'll bitch about it one way or another. And I go, do you vote? And they go, no. Well, look, I, 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 one interesting uh, good piece of news. A friend of mine, John Della Volpe, who is a poll, uh, you know, a pollster at Harvard University's Institute of Politics, and he, he measures and tracks youth vote. And he is reasonably convinced, based on these results, that we had an unprecedented number of young voters turning Good. out. You know, the problem has been young, young voters don't vote because they're, you know, they're indifferent. They've, they move, they're at college, you know, it's, it's their, they don't pay attention. Uh, but we saw a change in this election, and we saw some awakening of a younger generation. That really so Donald Trump was a product for change. <laughs> well, he he was uh, an instrument. He, he of motivated. Change? Yeah. He motivated a lot of young people to actually get involved and think that they could make a difference. And maybe, that, maybe that's the best thing you can say about Donald Trump. <laughs> well, let's go back to a little bit of that uh, when we're talking about the press and Donald Trump. Um, what about those who say, look, you're, you're press, you're, you're arrogant, obnoxious, you're slanted, and the president deserves to do what he did to you? Um, you mean in, in going after some reporters yeah. by name? And you mentioned two, both of whom I know, uh, both Jim Acosta and April Ryan. April Ryan, who is actually an interest, she reports for a thing called American Urban Radio. So right. she's African American. She her audience is largely African American radio, and Trump has gone after her in some pretty belligerent ways over yep. time, which borders on being almost racist in my in my view. almost yeah yeah and um, and she was she was hard on me when I was at the White House. I mean, she gave me a hard time. I remember one time she called me out at one of my White House press briefings on the subject of reparations. This is the idea that, you know, because of the evils of slavery and right. racism in America that uh, uh, there should be reparations paid to African Americans who suffered under those circumstances. And I remember the first time she asked it, I just thought that was a wildly weird idea. But she educated me. She forced me to actually learn more about that issue and pay more attention to it and understand where it was coming from and why she was asking the question. So there was something about just her presence there that made a difference. And she was not, you know, and I remember going into White House meetings and saying, you know, look, April Ryan's going to ask about reparations and we've, we need to address that issue thoughtfully. We just can't blow it off and say what a nut, nutty idea it is. And so she made a difference by her presence. Now that's, that's what the press does. You know, the press asking questions and challenging those in power. And when we have these, you know, press conferences where uh, the reporters stand up and ask the president's questions, they make, 
the government work better. And I, I'll give you an example. There were a couple of times when I would go into a meeting with President Clinton and we'd get ready for a press conference and we were going to kind of go through, okay, here's the question you're going to get, here's what the answer is. And Clinton would look at the prepared answer and he said, well, that's just bullshit. <laughs> I don't know if I can say that on the air. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> but, and, 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 and we'd say, yeah, well, that's kind of what our policy is, right? And he was, well, that's that's no good. We got to get, we got to do something about that. And he would get on the phone with a cabinet member and say, "Look, you know, they're telling me that I have to go out there and say this, but that that's no good. We got to do better." So it would it would force the government to work better because we had a free and independent press that was challenging us and asking us questions. It was, you know, I don't think there's any respect for that reality in the current White House. You know, that the, we, the, the hard questions, challenging questions from the press will make you better at the end of the day because you're going to have to have better answers. And, and I, I just, I, I, I doubt there's anybody at the Trump White House who appreciates that. Well, I don't think they have the experience to understand that. I mean, m many of them have, do not have the, uh, the background to do what it is that they're doing. Um, well, that's true, too. That's true, and too. And that's a problem. I mean, I've been told, you know, this is the president's office. Get out. And I'm going, look, yeah. this is the people's house. I was here before you. I'll be here after you. Nice or nasty. I'm here all week. Try the veal. You know, uh, there are no, I, when I was at the White House, our chief of staff was Leon Panetta, who's like one of my great heroes in public life. I think Republicans, my Republican pals, many of them work when Jim Baker was the yeah. White House chief of staff. There are no Leon Panettas or Jim Bakers in Donald no. Trump's life. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, you know, Leon Panetta one time, I, I remember running into him and, and he said, you had a great question today. Don't do it again. Thanks, Leon. He was a, a, a good combatant and very earthy. Yeah. <laughs> but but he's, I like he's a that. good guy. I, but that's the thing. There's a, you know, you were talking earlier about... Um, the differences, you know, like with Sam on or off camera, but there was always an understanding since I've been there that, you know, you've got a job to do, I got a job to do, but we can still be cordial to one another. You said amicable, but cordial yeah, to each other well, and businesslike and friendly like. It, it's not personal. Cordial implies friendliness, and I don't think that it's not. There, it's not the job of the press to be friendly with the White House, but True. the idea of amicable. I like and that. say. You've got a job, we've got a job, we can do it together, we're both professional in the way in which we do the job. And let's just get through the day and we'll do what we do and you do what you do and then the American people will get the benefit of reports and information and content so that they can understand what's going on. You say what you have to say, we report the way we see what's going on and then the American people get to judge. and and. We've lost that because that critical ingredient of keeping in mind both both sides of that equation, if you think about it, they want the American people to get information. You right. know, if you work at the White House, you sort of say if they would just report on all the great things we're doing, they'd love the president and, you know, and we'd be in good shape. And, of course, the press would say if we would just get access to all the information that we need and we can tell the American people what's going on, then they would end up having a better understanding of what the truth is. So both sides are sort of oriented towards trying to get the truth in front of the people. That's right. what they both want. Now, you said that 
the professionalism, the criticism against us in the press is we're not professional. Therefore, the president is responding to it. And they point to Jim's combativeness with the president, April's combative. She stands up. She asks a question. Me, I'm rude. I, I said, hey, how come you don't have any empathy? Uh, and, and I call Sarah on her stuff. So we're rude. It's us. It, we're the problem. Well, yeah. And and there's some truth to that. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> having been on the, you know, I, I earned my stripes as yeah. press secretary. You know, if if the press was so liberal, biased, and friendly, uh, you know, I wish they would have showed up more often <laughs> at the White House. Yeah, we hate everybody, <laughs> but uh, but that's not, you know. That's not what the, the job. The job is really about scraping away the barnacles that crust over the truth, so that you can actually find out what's really going on. And that—that's what the job of the press is: to really scrape away, get down to what really are the things that matter most to the American people. And it's never comfortable to to be on the side that's getting scraped. But on the other hand, it is essential to understand that that's. What, an important function in our democracy and when when you don't have that respect and when you see the belligerence and the antagonism that comes out of the words of the president of the united states towards the press that's frightening i mean that's what that's what happens when you know the the term nationalism which has been embraced by this president that has some pretty horrific <laughs> Not according to him. Not according to him. <laughs> well, it's, it's, that was a racist question to ask that, is what well, he said. Well, and it, it, that, there are some consequences for that kind of thinking. And yeah. we've, we've, we've seen that, and it's in the memory of people who are not much older than me, you and me. Yeah. Right? That's, and, well, and let's, the problem when we sit there and talk about it is that comes and it haunts me over and over again is, I saw you with Sarah at a, at a thing with the White House Correspondents Association, and I saw you try to talk to Sarah and say, look, you, you've got a more difficult situation than I did. Um, I don't think, the thing that keeps haunting me is I don't think that that plays in their universe. I don't yeah. think she understands. Right. I mean, the, the context of that was it was a panel discussion and we were together, and I, I, I tried to say to her, it's just not right to declare that the press is the enemy right. of the people. And you need to stop, you should not never do it, and you should stop the president from saying stuff like that. And she kind of, you know, sloughed it off and really didn't, you know, I don't think it made much of an impression on her. And I enjoyed talking to her, she, she's not, a, a deplorable person. No, she's <laughs> not. She's got look. She, I, she, I mean, she's she's friendly and reproachable, and I think she, you know, my impression, you you would know better, is that you know they they keep cordial relationships with the people who are in the press, but in the environment in which the boss is declaring the press the enemy of the people, there's only so much you can do to preserve that kind of working relationship well and, and uh, it's hard for us when we're lied to well, so that's often it. i mean that, i mean and we know it's a lie and in and there's no uh cost of spreading misinformation right. and falsehoods you yeah. know i mean you could you you, you know 
And it happens. We, we, we see this every single day. The yeah. Washington Post, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, they run these fact-check things. They say, here's, the president said this, this is false. And, you know, the word lie, which was forbidden from use in political vocabulary when I was coming up in politics. And me would, too. You would never say someone was a liar. It's, I mean, it's like now, front page, the press makes it clear that the president of the United States is lying. <laughs> and there's and like, and people say, well, yeah, that's just, you know, don't take Donald Trump literally. Well, you know, that's what they say. Oh, yeah, don't take him literally. He's just like, you know, he's just like, that's the way he is. I mean, oh, man. That, that, I can't, can't excuse that. that. That's, you're the president of the United States. The entire world is watching. And look, the day after he, he you know, he, he, we still haven't dealt with Kosoji because, you know, from the Washington Post, he was killed. And. There's been no, <clears throat> nothing done to Saudi Arabia, and probably won't be. There are problems with, um, where was it, Nairobi, Kenya? I can't remember. It was where they, they killed people, and they, and they quoted Donald Trump and, and saying he, he, he Look, gave him the influence. The words he says leads to the violence against us. I know. And it's the, the problem is, in the life of every president, there comes that moment when there is re a real crisis. And that's the point at which you really need to be able to go to the American people and summon their strength and their courage to respond to whatever the crisis is. Now, we have not, thankfully, had a moment like that. But we could very well have that in the next two years. And the problem for Donald Trump is that once you lose confidence in the truthfulness of the president or once you don't trust him to tell you the truth anymore, that when that moment of truth arrives, when you need it, you don't have the capacity to rally the American people and summons their better angels. And God forbid, if we have some horrific thing or some crisis or some attack or something that really challenges us as a nation. But that's when Donald Trump will pay the price for all that he's been doing because he will not have the ability to rally the American people when we need the president to rally the American people. Well, and we've, we've had plenty of times when, you know, look at all the horrific gun violence we've had. And, in the last you know, week? In the last week. And, uh, you know, that's when we would, you know, really want, you know, we'd want the ability of the president to actually do something at that point. And... I, I, I don't know. You're, it's a it's a gray, rainy Friday here in, in, <laughs> in Kensington, Maryland, Kensington, and, and now I'm, I'm depressing you <laughs> more. No, I, I mean, I go. No, I just got off a two week vacation. I walk in the White House, and there's a couple of people there I, I really do like. And they said, "Hey, you came back. You're, you, you have great energy. You're smiling." I'm going. I haven't been here for two weeks. It's been great. <laughs> I'm happy, and and I try not to lose that every day. But it does get. You talk about a crisis. I talked to Jamie Raskin, congressman from yes. uh, Maryland, who said, look, we're at that. We're at a constitutional crisis. And I that's been used so much with Donald Trump. It, we're at a constitutional crisis. But he's trying to end the Mueller investigation. 
I think, in between you and I, and you correct me if I'm wrong, I think this whole thing with Jim Acosta was to keep us from looking at what he actually did that day, which was fire Jeff Sessions <laughs> and put a guy in there and try to kill the Mueller investigation. Yeah, that yeah. he's always looking, he's trying to deflect what he does yeah. to keep us looking elsewhere. And I, if he can kill the First Amendment while he's doing it, he's fine with that. I have my own theory about that. Man. What is your theory? Uh, my theory is Mueller is finished. I mean, he, I mean, he's finished in that he has done his work. Right. And he could see what was developing. And I would not be surprised if he issues his report in the next couple of days and gives it to whoever the attorney general happens to be at the moment <laughs> and, and also sends it under seal to the Congress. And I'll bet that happens. I, I'm willing to bet that it would happen within days because I think... Mueller's not going to stick around and let some toady attorney general fire him. Do you think there'll think be further indictments? I think he's, yeah, I think he's going to indict Roger Stone and probably some other people too. Junior, Jared? I, I, I don't. I would just be guessing if I. Yeah, said. we're all. That's I've been asked that plenty of times. Look, but, I, and I'll and I'll tell you, I, I there was. But a, I, I I think the guy is smart, and I think, yeah. I think he's been working very, very hard to conclude it. There was a report in the Washington Post in the last couple of days that he's actually writing the final report now, which that means they're yeah. done. They're done with their work, and he's going to send it forward before anyone gets around to trying to fire him or throttle him or, you know, and issue the and, and issue indictments before then. Yes, I, I mean there clearly are going to be some more indictments. And it looked to me, looked, looks like, who knows, that Roger Stone is certainly in the crosshairs on that. But they're going to put together a case, and they will put together, I think they will put together a case that will also lay out what the impeachable offenses, offenses are without making that case. You know, they'll put, put the facts out there and then let Congress appropriately deal with that question. Well, that's a, I, the other thing that strikes me as so uh, disconcerting about all of that is that um, during this investigation, I've always heard the no collusion, no collusion. And I, 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 give me your take on this, because I was there and remember the point in time where candidate Donald Trump came out live on television and said, hey, Russia, look at her emails. Yeah. Does that, I mean, do I, I don't care about collusion. I, to me, that was a point reprehensible in American politics. Yeah, you know, it has always struck me as so odd that he keeps repeating that phrase, no collusion, there is no collusion. I mean, he says that every opportunity he has to say something. Which only to me indicates there's something that he's worried about. Yeah, <laughs> on, that, on that front. Yeah. So because he wouldn't kind of keep trying to make the case if he didn't fear that there was some case to be made. I mean, I, I'm. We're I, all I speculating. We're yeah. all speculating. But, um, I, you know, look, I think I think we're going to get a very thorough accounting from Robert Mueller about what really happened, and it's going to be. 
right on the money, and it's it, you know Congress is going to have to deal with it and decide how to deal with it. And the American people are going to have to judge, and there are a, a bunch of people who could end up going to jail, right? <laughs> because they clearly are going to have you know they've already had some indictments, and there'll be more indictments along the way. As a press secretary going forward, um, as a former press secretary going forward, what do we do to heal the rift between the press and the public and the politicians? Um, well, the one thing I would do is go back and undo the thing that I did, which was put all this on television. And I would create more circumstances in which there are informal gatherings between the press and the people who are accountable and so that they get to know each other, so they have real relationships. And it's not just the theater that we see on television. Theater of the absurd. Theater of the absurd, to be sure. Um, and then I would, you know, really make it hard for people who work in government not to understand that the public has a right to know and that there is an accountability that goes with being the custodians of public information and that you deserve to put that information out. I would also, you know, we have, the U.S. government employs hundreds of people who are in the public information role. I mean, they're good career people. I, I used to work with them very closely at the State Department when I was there, and then when I was at the White House, I worked with a lot of the government public information officers. We ought to pump them up and make them, you know, they, they walk around all the time worried that some political appointee will stifle them or give them a hard time. We ought, to, we ought to get them up and out there and, you know, giving the public the information the public has a right to see and know. And so I would, that, that's one thing I would do. There's, there are a couple of associations, by the way, that represent government public information officials and I'd give them more prominence and put more attention on the role that those kinds of folks play. And that, by definition, sort of limits the ability of the political appointees to have more control over right. what's out there. So it, would, it, it, it kind of uh, enhances the role of career public servants. Now, I say that in part because my dad was a career federal employee. <laughs> right. And, you know... And uh, so I've got great respect for what the career civil service is all about, and the, and the foreign service. Right. You know, that, that's, I mean, those, those were the folks that kept you alive. When I worked at the White House and the State Department, you know, without the career foreign service, civil service people, you know, you, you wouldn't have gotten anything done because they were the ones that really knew what was going what was on. really going on. Yeah, they were the ones that were working it. They, yeah, and they were, you know, and they'd worked it, and they'd worked it for years and years and had decades of experience, many of them. But that's, that's the, the starting point is to kind of reestablish that sense that government is not a bad thing, that the people who work in government are not bad people. And that, well, neither are <laughs> the people in the press. And, the, and, and yeah, and that was the flip side of that. Yeah, is that, that reporters are not enemies of the people. No, we're, we are the people. Right. I mean, we're the we're the people asking questions. And I, you know, I'll, I'll I'll back you up on part of that because I remember when I was first in a very young kid running into the White House. What I was most impressed with, even when it was 
Ronald Reagan that was there, was the number of times that people would talk to us and bring us into the, okay, now here's what we're going to talk about today. Here's the ball that's in play. Here's some background information. Here's what you need to know. And they provided us with not just, you know, the theater, but they provided us with hard copy stuff you know here's from the state department today all right in iran this has happened this has happened this has happened this and we don't get that anymore i know you know that when we would go on foreign trips when bill clinton was president i would invite experts from around the government and sometimes from outside the government just academic people saying okay we're going to go to france so let's bring in a bunch of people who are knowledgeable about the history this we were celebrating uh d-day uh, right during and, and we just brought in a bunch of experts to sort of say you know just come and talk to our press corps because they're sitting around bored all day long at the white <laughs> house so you know create something interesting for them and there should be a lot more of that now i am told in fairness i am told that the trump folks do more of that certainly than they did during the Obama years. That yes, they have brought some I will more give them that. In, uh, to do, you know, we have of, backgrounder briefings. We have uh, uh, off camera and on mic briefing. Right. I mean, they'll, they'll do that. But still, the what I what I miss is the, the hard information, and, and maybe it's just me being that kind of a wonk. Uh, I mean, yeah. But I want to see, I, I, you know. This is the most dangerous time in our history. Well, show me where that is. Give me some, you know, th- th- I don't get that. But I do get Stephen uh, Miller telling me, you know, that we're going to shut down and that, you know, MS-13 is, you know, we're, we're freeing cities from MS-13. And there's all kinds of, you know, Middle Eastern terrorists in, in these caravans. And all of that's baloney. I mean, they do right. have more, they are a little more accessible than Obama was. But I don't know if that's a good thing if the information they provide us isn't Well, that, that's the good. point. The, the point is that we, we brought in a lot of people to do briefings during the Clinton years that had no connection to the administration or no con- connection to the White House. They were not there to be cheerleaders. Yeah, I remember that. They were just there to kind of sort of say, look, we can give you a lot of expert information, factual data about this policy or that policy. And it was, you know, usually pretty neutral and usually useful to the White House press corps because exactly as you say they're just looking to get some information to help provide context for the stories that they're going to report and I think there has to be more commitment to that kind of ethic that we yes the people it's the public's right to know it's right. not you know the press's right to know it's not the politicians right to keep you know, a spin from. or right. to put it out there it's the American public deserve to get this information and if everybody kind of keeps focused on that point i think we end up in a better place so the two last thoughts one can we repair it can it, it, do you have hope i mean here we are on this dreary rainy day with a couple of drams at the dish and dram and <laughs> can is there is there a path forward that you see that's that can get us to where we need to be. Well, yes. I mean, you know, you have to be eternally optimistic because we've got such a grand history of things moving in the right direction over time. Will it take a different cast of characters than the current occupants of the White House? Probably. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Will it take a different attitude in the press corps? Probably. Will it take some recognition by the press that your institution is changing rapidly because of the yes. changes in technology, the you know, 
the decline of the mainstream press. I mean, we, in my time at the White House, we had that front row in the White House briefing that kind of controlled the, the, the high standards of the press. And it's, it, a lot of that has disaggregated now because of social media and the rise of, you know, non-traditional news sources. So will the press begin to recognize that and begin to, you know, to establish for itself some standards about what what counts for useful information and what is just, you know, sheer propaganda or gossip or the kinds of things that populate a lot of news sites that you and I both know. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there have to be some redefinition of terms on both sides, I think. But if, if, if we get back to my fundamental idea, everybody has got the right to an opinion, but not to their own facts. facts. I agree. And that, that, that's a famous Moynihan saying, by the way, my, my former boss. Um, who was a great guy. Who, and, and, but he had some fundamental commitment to the idea that, that policy had to be based on factual information and statistics. Culture, and, society. Right, well, uh, but first and foremost, factual information. Right. That, that, I'm then, saying culture. From then, yeah. from then, you could culture and influence and can't exist without can, shared facts can be communication can't exist without shared facts correct correct and i think we get back to that those fundamentals i think you can remain pretty optimistic so but, my final question to you then would be what does the press need to do better where are we at fault and what do we need to do better um i think attitude emotion passion have got to be kind of ironed out of the equation. And the more that people see the press just honing in on factual information and asking tough but realistic questions and not injecting opinion or editorializing into the work that they do, the trust level will go up. You know, we do, we've got a situation where people don't trust the press very much right now and I think the antidote to that is to get back to being as factual as possible um, ironing out editorializing an opinion which we see way too much of in in the press um, and I think if people sort of say I you know I, I know so-and-so has got an opinion and I read that in their blog but I go to, I, I, I joked with a, a college classmate of mine, Eric Schmidt, um, the chairman of Google. I said, why don't, you know, I said, Eric, why don't you just buy the New York Times and turn it <laughs> into like the Google Times and strip out all the op-eds and the editorials and just have nothing but hardcore factual information. And so everyone would say, well, I, you know, I know what so-and-so said, but I, We'll wait until the Google Times prints it because then I'll know what really is <laughs> the truth. I, I think his re he, he didn't have much of a reaction to that except to sort of imply that that's why he was a billionaire and I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> we but, know what H.L. Mencken said. Well, yes. He said, on the days that you don't have a good opinion, strike the opinion page. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And uh, But I think if we had, if we had places that... All Americans, regardless of their political flavor, agreed 
they are the places that you go to to get the factual information. I think if we had more of that, then I think we could then argue about who's got the right opinion or something. But well, we, we then would at least have a factual basis for our debates. Not to push back too much, but I do believe that some of that is because we, all right, from our, we don't label opinions as opinions when we give them, when we should. But then there are also people who confuse opinion pieces for news pieces, and well, that's a problem. I mean, and that I mean, maybe that goes to what you were saying about too many opinions. Yeah, I'll argue with you a little bit about that because okay. it became a convention in reporting and journalism, you know, in the last several decades, to believe that you had to put the news in context because people would say, "All right, I, they already have got the information. We have to kind of help them understand what the information is about," and that's when in my opinion, bias crept into news coverage. I'll give you that. So you, you, you got away from it. If you go pick up a front page of the New York Times from the 1960s or 70s. 70s, right. Yeah, it, it, it's stunning just how completely factual the stories are. And there's none of this sort of interpretation that you see right. now on the front page of our major newspapers well, in, in I, our I, reporting. You know what? I won't... I, I'll say this. I have young reporters who work for me, and they come into me all the time in staff meetings and go, well, this is what I think. And I go, I don't give a shit what you think. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. I, only know what, I only want to know what you know. An opinion writer can tell me what he thinks, but he's not going to be the news writer, and I don't want any opinions in the news pieces, and I strike those all the time out of our well, paper. Maybe that's the way we conclude that we need more fact-based presentations. The press needs to focus more on what the factual information is that people need to know so that they can make their own opinion. And those on the government side have a responsibility to the public, which has a right to know, to present factual information without a lot of spin and propaganda. That's a great way to end it. Mike, I appreciate you being here today. Hope I can have you back sometime. Great. Good conversation. Yeah, it was great. Uh, thanks for being with us. Once again, it's Just Ask the Question. I am Brian Karam. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you soon. Mm -hmm.